Part 3, Chapter 4 of Rubble and Rose Leaves and Things of That Kind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Charles Conover. Rubble and Rose Leaves by Frank W. Borum. Old Photographs. We badly need an asylum for antiquated portraiture, a pleasant and hospitable refuge in which all of our old photographs could be carefully preserved and reverently handled. For lack of such an institution, we are all in difficulties. People come into our lives, we become attached to them, and value their friendship. We exchange photographs, and, as soon as we have done so, the inevitable happens. The photographs get hopelessly out of date. Friends come and go. We come and go. But the photographs remain. Or, if the friends themselves abide, they change. Fashions change. And, in a few years, the photographs look singularly archaic, if not positively ridiculous. They go away into a drawer or a box. Once or twice a year, a spring cleaning or other volcanic upheaval reminds us of their existence. We must really sort these out and destroy a lot of them, we say. But we never do it. Everybody knows why. It seems a betrayal of old confidences, an outrage upon sentiment, a heartless sacrilege. There should be an asylum for obsolete portraiture, or, if that is out of the question, we should do with the photographs what Nansen and Johansen the polar explorers did with their dogs. Neither had the heart to shoot his own, so, amid the ice and snow of the far north, they exchanged their canine companions, and each went sadly and silently away and shot the others. Such a course must, however, be regarded as a makeshift and a subterfuge. The asylum is the thing. I am opposed tooth and nail to the destruction of old photographs under any conditions. I spent an hour yesterday down by the lake reading some of the love letters that Mozart wrote to his wife nearly two centuries ago. Poor Johann and poor Stranzerl. They were so pitifully penniless that when, on bitter winter's morning, a kindly neighbor fought his way through the deep snow to see how the young couple were getting on, he found them dancing a waltz on the bare boards of their narrow room. They could not afford a fire, and this was their device for keeping warm. And now Johann is away on a business trip. In our time, a husband so situated would send his wife a telegram to say that he had arrived safely or perhaps buy her a picture postcard of the view from his hotel window. But Mozart wrote the prettiest love letters. "'My dear wife,' 
he says, if I only had a letter from you, if I were to tell you all that I do with your dear likeness, how you would laugh. For instance, when I take it out of its case, I say, God greet thee, Stanzerl. God grant thee, thou rascal, shuttlecock, pointy nose, knick-knack bit and sup. And when I put it back, I let it slip in very slowly, saying with each little push, Now, now, now. And at the last, quickly, Good night, little mouse. Sleep well. Where is that portrait now? I dread the hazard of conjecture. There was, alas, no asylum to which it could be fondly and reverently entrusted. Photographs, like fashions, are capable of strange revivals. One never knows when crinolines or hobble skirts will reappear. And in the same way, one never knows the moment at which some quaint old photograph will acquire new and absorbing interest. "'Why, bless me!' you exclaim as you lay down the newspaper. "'Here's Charlie Brown become famous. You remember Charlie. He was the second son of the Browns who lived opposite us at Kensington. Why, I have a photograph of him, taken when he was a little boy. I'll run and get it. But alas, it has been destroyed, or the regret may be even more poignant. Dear me, you say, poor old Mary Smith is dead. The announcement brings with it, as such announcements have a way of doing, a rush of reminiscence. A simple old soul was Mary Smith. She was very good to us five and twenty years ago, when the children were all small and sicknesses were frequent. Mary always knew exactly what to do. But we moved away, and the years went by. Letter-writing was not in Mary's line. With the obituary notice still before us, we talk of Mary and the old days for a while, and then we suddenly remember that, when we came away, Mary gave us her photograph. It was a quaint, old-fashioned picture. It had been taken some years earlier, but we were glad to have it, and we put it with the others. We must slip up and get it. But it, too, has vanished. Somehow, Mary, living, did not seem quite so pathetic and lovable a figure as Mary dead. At some spring cleaning we must have glanced at the creased and faded portrait, and without pausing to allow memory to do such vivid work as she has done today, we must have tossed it out. We feel horribly ashamed. If only we could recover the old photograph, we would stand it on the mantelpiece and do it single honor. And to think that, in the confusion of cleaning up, we threw it out, perhaps tore it up, perhaps even burned it. We shudder at the thought, and half hope that, in her new and larger life, Mary, who seems nearer to us now than she did before we read of her passing, does not know that we were guilty of treachery so base. Thus there come into our lives moments when photographs assert their worth and insist on being appraised at their true value. 
In the stirring chapter in which Sir Ernest Shackleton tells of the loss of his ship among the ice floes, he describes an incident that must have set all his readers thinking. In the grip of the ice, the endurance had been smashed to splinters, and the entire party were out on a frozen sea at the mercy of the pitiless elements. Shackleton came to the conclusion that their best chance of eventually sighting land lay in marching to the opposite extremity of the flow. At any rate, it would give them something to do, and there is always solace in activity. He thereupon ordered his men to reduce their personal baggage to two pounds weight each. For the next few hours, every man was busy in sorting out his belongings, the treasures that he had saved from the ship. It was a heartbreaking business. Men stole gloomily and silently away and dug little graves in the snow, to which they committed books, letters, and various knick-knacks of sentimental value. And when the final decision had to be made, they threw away their little hordes of golden souvenirs and kept the photographs of their sweethearts and wives. The same perplexity arises sooner or later in relation to the portraits and pictures on our walls. They become obsolete, but we find it difficult to order their removal. I had intended, long before this, devoting an essay to the whole subject of pictures. Why must we smother our walls with pictures? To begin with, the pattern of the paper is often a series of pictures in itself, while the dado and the border simply add to the collection. Then, over these, we carefully arrange a multitude of others—paintings, engravings, and photographs hang everywhere. Why do we cover the walls in this way? The answer is that we cover the walls in order to cover the walls— the walls represent an imprisonment. The pictures represent an escape. On the wall in front of me, for example, there hangs a watercolor sketch of Pirapiki Gorge, our New Zealand holiday resort. On a winter's night, when the rain is lashing against the windows and the wind shrieking round the house, I glance up at it, and by some magic transition— I am roaming on a summer's evening over the old familiar hills with my gun in my hand and John Broadbanks by my side. Through the medium of those landscapes, how many tireless excursions have I taken, by copse and beach and riverbank, without so much as rising from my chair? The photographs hanging here and there around the room transport my mind to other days and other places. The apartment in which I sit may be extremely small, just as the space that I occupy on the summit of a mountain may be extremely small. But, occupying that small space upon that lofty eminence, I command a view that loses itself in infinity, and, lounging in my comfortable chair in this little snuggery of mine, the pictures transform it into an observatory, and I am able to survey the entire universe. 
You do not hang pictures in the cells of a jail. The reason is obvious. You do not wish the prisoners to escape. You think it good that they should feel the stern tyranny of those four uncompromising walls. Conversely, you deck the dining room with pictures because there you do not desire to feel imprisoned. You do not wish the walls to seem tyrannical. As Mr. Sterling Bowen sings, Four walls enclose me, yet how calm they are. They hang up pictures that they may forget. What walls are for in part, forget how far they may not run and riotously let their laughter taunt the never-changing stars. In circus cages, wolves and tigers pace. Forever to and fro, they do not rest but seek so nervously the longed-for place. Our picture jungles would not end their quest, or pictures of another tiger's face. On four square walls men have their world, their strife, their painted-framed endeavors, joys and pain, and two curators known as man and wife hang up the sunrise, wipe the dust from rain, and gaze excitedly on painted life. A picture on the wall is like a window, only more so. A window looks out on the garden or the street. A picture is an opening into infinity. The view from my window is controlled by circumstances. I cannot, for example, live in this Australian home of mine and command, from my window, a view of Yorkminster the Bridge of Sighs, or the Rocky Mountains. And even if I could, the darkness of each night would enfold the pleasing prospect in its somber and impenetrable veil. But the pictures do for me what windows could never do. By means of the picture, I cut holes in the walls and look out upon any landscape that takes my fancy. And, when evening comes, I draw the blinds, illumine the room from within, and the panorama that has so delighted me in the daytime reveals fresh charms in the softer radiance of the lamps. We all owe more to pictures than we have ever begun to suspect. Here is a merry young romp of a schoolboy, of tousle head and swarthy face, loving the open air and hating books like poison. A lady gives him a ponderous volume, and he turns away with a sneer. But one day he casually opens it. There is a colored picture. It represents Robinson Crusoe and his man Friday in the midst of one of their most exciting adventures. The boy, George Barrow, seized the book, carried it off, and never rested until he had read it from cover to cover. It opened his eyes to the possibilities of literature, and to his dying day he declared that, but for the colored print, the world would never have heard his name or read a line from his pen. Nor is that all, for it is probable that, in infancy, our minds receive their first bias towards, or away from, sacred things from the pictures 
of biblical subjects and biblical characters that are then, wisely or unwisely, exposed to our gaze. The face that, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we think of as the face of Jesus is, in all likelihood, the face that we saw in the first picture book that Mother showed us. But I fear that I have wondered. I set out to talk not so much about pictures as about photographs, photographs in general and old photographs in particular. Have photographs, and especially old photographs, no ethical or spiritual value? Is there a man living who has not, at some time, felt himself rebuked by eyes that look down at him from a frame on the wall? I often feel, in relation to the photographs around the room, as Tennyson felt in relation to the spirits of those whom he had loved long since and lost a while. It is lovely to think that those who have passed from our sight are not, in reality, far from us. And yet, do we indeed desire the dead should still be near us at our side? Is there no baseness we could hide, no inner vileness that we dread? Shall he for whose applause I strove, I had such reverence for his blame, see with clear eyes some hidden shame, and I be lessened in his love? Who has not been conscious of a similar feeling under the searching glances of the eyes upon the wall? They seem at times to pierce our very souls. Tennyson came at last to the comfortable assurance that the shrinking fear with which he thought of his dead friends was not justified. For, he reflected, those who had gone out of the dusk into the daylight had acquired not only a loftier purity, but a larger charity. I wrong the grave with fears untrue. Shall love be blamed for want of faith? There must be wisdom with great death. The death shall look me through and through. But near us when we climb or fall, ye watch like God the rolling hours with larger other eyes than ours to make allowance for us all. It is pleasant to transfer that thought to the photographs around the room. They hang there all day and every day. They hear all that we say and see all that we do. Those quiet eyes seem to read us narrowly. Yet if, on the other hand, they see more in these secret souls of ours to blame, it is possible that, on the other, they see more to pity. The judgments that we most dread are the judgments of those who only partly understand. The drunkard shrinks from the eyes of those who see his debauchery but know nothing of his temptation. There is something wonderfully comforting and strengthening in the clear eyes of those who see, not a part merely, but the whole. Charles Simeon of Cambridge adorned his study wall with a fine picture of Henry Martin.
it is very difficult to say which of the two owed most to the other. In the days when he was groping after the light, Henry Martin, then a student, fell under the influence of Mr. Simeon, and no other minister helped him so much. But later on, when Henry Martin was illuminating the Orient with the light of the gospel, his magnetic personality and heroic example exerted a remarkable authority over the ardent mind of the eminent Cambridge scholar. Mr. Simeon began to feel that, in some subtle and inexplicable way, the portrait on the wall was influencing his whole life. The picture was more than a picture. A wave of reverential admiration swept over him whenever he glanced up at it. He caught himself talking to it, and it seemed to speak to him. His biographer says that. Mr. Simeon used to observe of Martin's picture, while looking up at it with affectionate earnestness as it hung over his fireplace. There! See that blessed man! What an expression of countenance! No one looks at me as he does. He never takes his eyes off me and seems always to be saying, Be serious! Be in earnest! Don't trifle! Don't trifle! Then smiling at the picture and gently bowing, he added, And I won't trifle! I won't trifle! His friends always felt that the photograph over the fireplace was one of the most profound and effective influences in the life and work of Charles Simeon, and nobody who treasures a few reproving and inspiring pictures of the kind will have the slightest difficulty in believing it. The photographs upon my wall are never tyrannical else why should I prefer them to the cold, imprisoning walls? But though never tyrannical, they are always authoritative. They speak, not harshly, but firmly. In the nature of the case, these were the faces I revere, the faces of those whom I have enthroned within my heart. Being enthroned, they command. They sometimes say, thou shalt. They sometimes say, thou shalt not. They sometimes suggest. They sometimes prohibit. And now, before I lay down my pen, shall I reveal the circumstance that led me to this train of thought? I am writing at Easter time. On Good Friday, a lady presented me with an exquisitely sad, but unspeakably beautiful picture, a picture of the thorn-crowned face. Where am I to hang it? It will insist, tenderly but firmly, on a suitable and harmonious environment. Henry Drummond used to tell of a Cambridge undergraduate whose sweetheart visited his room. She found its walls covered with pictures of actresses and racehorses. She said nothing, but, on his birthday, presented him with a picture like this. A year later, she again called on him at Cambridge. The thorn-crowned face hung over the fireplace, 
and the other walls were adorned with charming landscapes and reproductions of famous paintings. He caught her glancing at her gift. "'It's made a great difference to the room,' he said. "'What's more, it's made a great difference in me.'" This is a way our pictures have. They insist on ruling everything and everybody. I have no right to enthrone a despot in my home, nor to exalt a thorn-crowned king, unless I am prepared to make him lord of all. End of Part 3 Chapter 4